Hello, welcome to this new Tech Captain episode. So today we are lucky to have uh, Matthew Whitworth with us. Hi, Matthew. Hi, guys. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, so you've had a bachelor degree in computing. You worked uh, mostly in finance until you became CTO of Talarium today. But a more interesting bit, uh, I, I will ask you a bit later, is uh, about the operating system you spent five years uh, working on. Sure. Uh, <laughs> which seems very, very interesting. But uh, and as usual, I'm joined with uh, Gareth, who will be uh, joining this discussion. Hi, Matthew. Hi, everyone. So, uh, Matthew, I mean, let's go, let's go into it. Like, tell us more about this operating system. Sure. So I think this was more of a project uh, kind of bedroom uh, style thing at home, really. What the idea was, was let's see how far I can get, which is usually a good uh, operating principle for most things that you want to do, especially those that seem quite challenging. So um, really, you start with writing the bootloader. And if you can get to that stage, that's already quite a few uh, problems solved. And then it was really just a case of you know bringing up the kernel bringing up some services oh can it do this well it's not too much of a uh, difficulty to um add this functionality oh it's got a shell now and then it's this sort of steps it's almost in some ways the perfect uh um kind of set of steps really this sort of feedback this iteration that we all like this yes i've done it type approach i think that was the kind of thing that really kept me going for quite a long time there and you know a couple of hours in the every other evening or so it was quite a big project over a, a number of years um it's somewhere it lives somewhere on github now i haven't touched it for a very long time but it's still good to look back and uh, and see what i i was like back there as well it's interesting what, what language did you use to write it so it was assembly for the bootloader because you have to stuff everything into 512 bytes um, and then C for that. And I had the approach, I think, at some point to try and port Mono, which is the C sharp runtime, uh, the open source one, yeah. and get that running. And I felt like, OK, if I'm uh, writing in such a high level language there, then I can really forget all the other um, pain and uh, misery that comes with writing in a low level language for I quite a long once time as well. Everything is easy after. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, it forces you to check everything at least five times. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I actually started. I did assembly many, many moons ago, and I, I really loved it. And I, I still, I still miss the simplicity of it, to be honest with you. I think it promotes a certain rigor of thought. You know, it's this idea of you can't just uh, sort of write something uh, and then hope think it'll be accepted. You really have to think about every stage, about every. Uh, you know, memory location you're referencing, et cetera, as well. So that, I think that's what working in uh, an environment with a lot of constraints does. It just makes you a better thinker as a result. Um, I was looking at something the other day, and it was a, uh, I've always had an interest in fourth for some reason, and a guy had written a, uh, he'd, he'd written a custom CPU in discrete sure. logic to run a, to run a fourth, uh, well, compiler interpreter, a whole in fourth environment. I thought how extraordinary that was. People do crazy stuff in this area, don't they, really? <laughs> That's right. And I think it's that kind of, uh, if people are working right at the base, and I think in computing, to me, it's uh, operating systems and it's language environments. You know, like the fourth example you just mentioned, it's all those stories of this guy wrote X in a weekend, and it always seems to come back down to, uh, to those subjects as well. And can you tell us more about your role now at Talarium? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. 
uh, it's company has been there for a few years, ra raised a bit of money. Um, I think you guys are like 15, 20 people now. Um, so can you tell us more about this? Yeah, of course. So really the cons core concept is the fact that uh, traders in the energy markets receive a lot of data, not via exchanges like you might typically have, say, in equities, stocks and shares, etc. cetera. Uh, it's more about uh, a brokered market. So these guys will get lots of quotes from their favorite brokers over chat messages. So Yahoo Messenger uh, essentially ran the world commodity markets for a long time. When Yahoo retired it, they, uh, things sort of scattered into different uh um, different chat provider systems as well. So that was definitely our core business for a long time um, of uh, transforming the raw chat messages that people would get essentially into numbers on a screen, something where you could look at the average uh, forward curve. You know, wh what can I, what's the price for propane in say February next year and just look at it and know it straight away as well. So we really focused on handling that because that's the, core market data that this environment operates under. And we're doing some pretty cool things with voice recognition, because just as these guys get lots of chatter, they also have these voice boxes that uh, you know, have tons and tons of calls going over them. It's almost impossible to, to keep up with all the information that they're getting. And it just doing that is just a huge mental load. That means they're not really able to operate um, and kind of figure out what the true value is, identify trading opportunities, uh, etc. So business-wise, I found that a really attractive proposition. And it's kind of hard to believe that things still operate in this way in the year 2023, but hopefully we can do something about that. So are you doing something in real time with the voice then? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, it's close to real time, I, um, but it's a sense of once this voice recording finishes, it gets uploaded, we process it. There's a lot of specialist language. I kind of like to use the analogy of a cattle auction, this sort of sense of English with all the extraneous words stripped out. And really in about the three or four second window that these brokers have, they're able to transmit what the price is, what the period is and what the product is pretty quickly. So trying to actually find a voice recognition engine or providers actually that were happy to work with us based on that was, uh, was quite a challenge to begin with because everybody's really interested in say courtroom transcriptions. You know, if people use a particularly sort of easy to understand formal English and it's very, very far away from the kind of specialist uh, lingo that these guys end up and using. And who are your clients? Uh, household names, the biggest super majors, uh, energy trading companies in the world. Um, so they're all interested in that because they know that uh, they get a ton of data and pretty much, especially in the classic example here is voice calls. As soon as that voice call is finished, that information which the company could use just disappears into the other. Yeah. And what it feels like your timing is perfect as well with everything going on, right? Energy <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, I often uh, hope that energy is a bit, sort of out of the news a, a little less, but, yeah. um, you know, that I'd be able to focus on some other things. But it seems like every day there's, uh, you know, something new to do with the structure of how energy is traded around the world and more broadly commodities as well. That's something humans have been doing for thousands of years. And well, no doubt, continue to do more. And of. Given, given the audience we have at Tech Captains, maybe you can tell us more about the, the tech stack you have for all of that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so really the back end is in Elixir, uh, and that's a uh, environment that we're very much big fans of. The idea is that um, the thinking around a lot of conventional 
uh, architectural approaches is let's uh, let's have something let's have a monolithic backend and when it gets too big let's split it out into a whole set of microservices uh, elixir erlang and everything based on the beam vm is very much about message passing so you still get this sense of having a uh, a, a kind of set of services really in elixir they're gen servers but you're passing passing messages between them but you don't um have all the problems that a very distributed microservice based approach does around testing and deployment and things like that and what we found is keep it monolithic but monolithic doesn't mean uh, poor design bad design it's more about um does the environment that you're using, the language you're using, promote good design practices? And hey, when it makes sense, we can pull a service out, put it on another machine, and it's as long as it joins that same cluster. To me, that's the beauty of Erlang. It looks like it's running locally there as well. Yeah, so I, I was because I, I didn't know much about it. I mean, I, I knew what Erlang was because that's been around for I think since the '80s, right? It's pretty old. It's like Ericsson who who developed it originally. Um, Quite right. Yeah, so I wasn't, I didn't know much about Alexa. It was kind of interesting reading up on it, and uh, and they were saying obviously you can have thousands of these processes and these threads running that are can communicate with each other. How does that work then when you're running in a containerized environment? Does it does it does the framework handle that for you? How does that sort of work? So you lose some of the coolest aspects of it. I mean things like hot code reloading, um, and of course that's the basis in the whole public switch telephone network when's the last time you picked up the phone and the dial tone didn't uh, ring i suppose that's <laughs> yeah. a, a rather older example now but uh it's this sense of uh ev everything else does work though because really what's happening is it's a distributed cluster and so long as the nodes can discover each other then you're kind of uh good to go um so in for example and there's multiple ways of assembling that cluster dns entries etc but if you can get that going then um, you can really scale horizontally as aggressively as you want, not just vertically on the same machine. Mm. And I was reading as well, they, there were people just going crazy about how good the tooling was for Elixir. They said, I mean, I just read a few things. It's like, sounds pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, to point out one technology that I've I've been a big fan of is Phoenix Live View. Um, and it resurrects that old idea of, well, can we have a dumb client? Um, and have all the logic and the display things take uh, display logic, sorry, take place on the back end, and then the the front end is only just processing DOM updates, and that's kind of it. So if you want a whole bunch of examples about you know various games, etc., uh, where everything um, functionality wise is running on the back end, Phoenix Live View is the way to go. So all of our internal tooling is written in that, and that makes it like a a joy to write and use. It doesn't feel like labor it feels like um you know you can get something useful going uh in say half an hour or so for any other functionality that we would want to maintain and to, to do all that given the, the size of the company like are you i suppose a very hands-on cto <laughs> yeah i think i'm still very much the everyday coder uh, type as well so uh it's this sense of uh I think being involved in every project, and I have uh, six, seven people that report to me, but I feel like um, I'd be remiss if I wasn't uh, up to date on what we were trying to achieve in each one as well. It's not that I sort of like to be overbearing, it's more it's great to have somebody else who, who doesn't know the details, but can certainly um, give an opinion on the what. And how do you manage the, the context switch? Because I mean, I, I'm a bit in the same position sure. as you, like my company is about the same size, maybe a few more people. 
And I also spend a good chunk of my time programming while doing all the other admin managerial tasks. And it's not always easy to focus on something for a while deeply in the codes while you have all these other demands coming from all sides. That's a good question. I would say it's about great note-taking. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, when you have to think about so many things at once, of course, that just builds the anxiety levels in general. I think everybody is uh, sort of prone to that. But if you know that you can get stuff out of your head onto paper and you can find it later and retrieve it, that's the kind of way I've always worked. And I've trusted myself that I'll be able to to get that context back. And then just lots of practice, I suppose, when it comes to that as well. Yeah. And just going back to what you were just talking about, though, with this um, sort of terminal view, it, re it just reminded me of the thing that's constant in tech, right? Everything is well, as the Americans say, cyclical, cyclical, right? All, all these sort of things yep. go back and now we have server-side rendering and we have all these kind of things. So it's kind of everything, everything just, we just seem to go back to, to technologies that we had 20, 30 years ago and we rehash them and bring them forward, don't we really? It's interesting. That, that's right. Remote procedure calls are now microservices and hey, isn't the word microservice <laughs> cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, and then there's people even going back to monoliths too. I read something the other day, there's someone that abandoned Mike and they built a monolith again. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it, help, it helps to be countercultural, I think, a lot of the time. <laughs> so you've got, I'm guessing, some kind of real-time dashboards and all the rest of it. Did, have you built those yourselves? Uh, and, and the reason I ask that is that it seems to be that that whole area of these, these sort of um, dashboards, that's almost become a commodity now, you know, with things like QuickSight and Looker and Tableau and all of these things. So have you gone that route? Have you built this all? This is all stuff that you've built yourself. That's a really interesting thing. I mean, for us, we built, it's a, a, a kind of a roll your own attempt with TypeScript and Ember and Ember being sort of third to React and others these days. Um, so I would say um, it's a sense of, uh, there are definitely uh, good patterns to use. And I think this is the case in something like LiveView. They're really, really good UI components and really every terminal interface and terminal as our primary product is a sense of assembling all those different components together, plugging in this data source. And it's that whole, whole model of reactivity to, to change data that just needs to work as well. So we never actually thought incredibly deeply about it, but there are certain elements that we could replace with that. And there's things like the charting, and, and we also have this quote feed, which is just a linear history of quotes. I look at it and go, there isn't anything particularly uh, you know, unique to us about it. And But I think what we're doing as a company really is shifting from being a terminal first company. How many terminals can we shift to others to being a data first company? So we're starting to see the value in that number, the, the aggregated number that we produce, uh, which is another one of the features that we're building, that's the kind of quality that people want to see. And they might just see in some other uh, risk system. I mean, not to bore people, but there are plenty of risk management systems in uh, finance and people see numbers in those. Mm, yeah. And, and in building all of this, is latency something you spend a lot of time thinking about? Because I know that, you know, you look at people trading. I mean, there's famous stories like the Michael Lewis book, I think, was talking about the guys that were building dedicated fiber in a race to get you know trading advantages in in new york i can't remember the name of the book was he wrote it was, it was uh, really good but um is that uh, it was called it was called flash, flash boys, boys and i remember it because uh, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, obsessing about low latency is something in my previous job, let's say, um, I guess maybe it's a relief I don't have to focus on it too much because of course uh, the, the whole market is not very electronically driven, but I do remember the days of you know, trying to optimize things so that the thread ran dedicated on a single CPU, that you know, we were uh, making sure that we were getting the lowest uh, latency order entry to the exchanges and all the other FPGA technologies that come with uh, that. That was a really cool thing, but the 2010s were a, definitely a, a time of change for that particular industry. And once you get microwave links, it's kind of played out, you know, how much further can you go? The speed of light is the obvious. Uh... And, and there's, spe speaking of books, Matt, like there's a book, like we have a tradition of every guest recommending a book they really liked. And for you, I think it was Turn the Ship Around from David Market. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it was a recommendation from um, someone else. Uh, Tellarium, um, I... I read it because it, there's this sense, especially in uh, larger companies where you'll hire really smart people, but then you don't really give them the uh, autonomy or independence to grow. I've always been kind of conscious of that because there are very uh, good thinkers. And after a while, professional software development is much less about the how and it's much more about the what. That's what really what people end up working on and how, and how they end up doing it. Those are the two things that matter. So although his uh, example is about uh, a US submarine, it just happened to be the worst in the, the class and it was a joke to the rest of the uh, US Navy, it was this sense of, well, it's still an organization of people, regardless of what we do. Um, how can I turn it from this attitude of, I just do what they tell me to, they actually have good ideas that are on track that get accepted by the, the crew of this submarine as well. So uh, it was a book written quite a few years ago, but I still think it holds kind of timeless lessons uh, there. Yeah, and the other thing I was interested in, you've got, um, uh, I saw a, a, a blog or some article, it was mentioning um, Talarium University. Can you, can you talk about what that is? Uh, that's just a sort of internal thing. I mean, we uh, the uh, one of the interesting things that we have is such a tough and uh, frankly weird field that we operate in as well. So if people want to know the various terms that we use, um, uh, and maybe this is kind of a, a shared topic of discussion, how do you get people up and to speed in the domain really quickly? Um, it's that kind of structure of active learning, of having those slides available to use and things like that. It's easy to... Uh, go very far in a startup and then think, okay, well, how do new joiners actually get uh, familiar with the uh, lingo, et cetera? This is something that's a very pressing matter for us because yeah, there's no way that you can read most of this stuff in even publicly available books. It just doesn't uh, get documented. Okay, so it's basically, uh, it's this, it's a way that you onboard or bring on new people onto your team or whatever, really. It's, uh, okay. Yeah. I have a yeah. last question for you to, to end this podcast, Matt, is that do you have any advice for anybody starting in the tech world? I see you've also worked a bit at Bloomberg, which is a very large company, obviously, you know, working in a small company, like how do you compare? What do you recommend to people about the different technologies or the size of companies, anything? I think a lot of it's about being a better thinker, being a more rigorous thinker and, uh, if you can communicate those kind of complex ideas well, it doesn't really matter what you're working on, even in software. Um, it's all about how can you think uh, further into the future in terms of strategy. Um, 
So I'd say that that's kind of one piece of advice, which is don't focus on the technology, focus on the process, focus on the thought. Um, in terms of uh, any other advice, I would say uh, don't follow the trends. I've been very counter cyclical for a very long time. And I think uh, I've kind of enjoyed what I've done and I've not really cared if anybody else uh, has thought I've uh, enjoyed it as well so that's interesting what you said because i you know we're, i think in tech we always struggle with well in any industry what how do you interview people how do you find the best people interviewing is hard and i don't think there is a perfect process but one of the things i've always done i say to people is that for when you're hiring engineers it's about how do they solve problems you know how do you think through and solve a problem which is i think to your point right that's right and it's taking it away from this very um uh, as we all know, the whiteboard style interview, yeah. um, uh, it's this collaborative approach. Really, the key question to ask is, would I be put off trying to get something done with this guy or not? So when we interview, it tends to be in a very, hey, you know, this is you and me. It's not you versus me uh, approach there. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is a collaborative thing because it's also we had um, we actually did a, a, a podcast yesterday uh and uh um you know the person we were talking to there was um, was saying how important it was for you as a candidate to qualify the company are, are they are they going to have the right culture for you right so i think i think to your point you know interviews now are, are, are much less sort of combative us versus them it's about trying to understand each other right really well is this the right business for you um is this the right cultural fit for you and you know it's 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 changed quite a bit, I think. I think the interview process has changed a lot, actually. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, actually, a final question then related to to this. Sorry, you were talking about, you know, young techies then. So, the the, the, the obvious thing is, what, what do you think about chat GPT and how that might change what people might decide to study and do when they come out of university, perhaps? That's a good question. I think uh, there's a lot of hype around it, and it's that classic model of technology adoption. Um, fundamentally, uh, those large language models aren't going to tend towards truth. They're really good at composing um, songs or poems about your dog, but fundamentally, they need a lot of work and a lot more basis to uh, make sense. Is that saying that I'm a huge fan of Copilot, and I think there's uh, there's a lot of context in software development. And so I think there'll be specialist fields where it will have takeoff immediately. I, if I'm referencing A, B, and I'm about to do something with C, it can kind of work out that A and B are involved. But good luck in low context uh, environments where you can't make those. You're talking about GitHub Copilot, right? That's right, yeah. Does your team use that? Everyone uses that where you are now, do they? Yeah, even the holdouts, and I think the idea of Copilot X um, being able to sort of chat there, it's it becomes less of a, I suppose, again, the you versus me type thing. It's more of a collaborative conversation uh, there, but you're feeding context to the other person. So I can definitely see that being a big factor in 2023 and 2024. I think we're just at the start of that. That's what gets me excited about uh, LLMs like ChatGPT. I, I don't believe the wider hype. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I guess on this uh, note of uh, excitement, we will uh, sure. we will finish here today. Um, thank you so much, Matt, for your time and uh, speaking to us today. Great. Thanks. Thanks to you both. That's yeah. Thanks, fun. Matt. Very nice to meet you. Perfect. You. Thank you. Bye bye. See you everyone in two weeks. Bye bye.